Hear now the word of Almighty God, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, bless us in the reading of your word. Bless us now in the preaching and hearing of your word, that you might write your words upon our hearts. Give me a, to a tongue that is unloosed to speak forth the words of God with boldness as I ought to speak, and give us all ears to hear and hearts to believe in what you have promised and what you have spoken and readiness to obey all that you have commanded. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our study in the book of Romans, now coming to the second consideration of Romans 9. Last time from verses 1 through 3, we saw that swearing is lawful for Christians. It was done by the apostle under the inspiration of God's spirit in verse 1. In verses 2 and 3, we saw that a firm conviction of the decree of reprobation is not inconsistent with a desire for the salvation of reprobates. We saw our duty to set our minds upon God's decrees, as we'll consider in Romans 9 but also to cultivate charity and love for our neighbors. Verse 3, we saw that a wholesome love for our own people, even in preference to other people groups, is both godly and wholesome and right. Though bounded by the first table of the law, which says that if our ancestors or our people are wicked, we don't go along with their wickedness, God is first, then our people are second the subordination of the uh, second table of the law to the first table of the law. We saw our duty to cultivate a pious love for your own family, for your own race, your own nation, and your own people. We also saw in verse 3 that there is a wholesome love of the spiritual brotherhood. There are earthly races and there are spiritual races. We saw that this race of Christians goes on forever that we are one household of faith, that we are heirs together of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Let us then learn to do good unto all men, but especially to the household of faith. Now to the outline of chapter 9, just as a reminder, they're printed in your notes. Verses 1 through 5, we have the apostles' sincere and divinely inspired sorrow for the Jewish nation. Verses 6 through 13, scripture proof that not all of Abraham's descendants are included in the promises. Verses 14 through 18, there is no unrighteousness with God from a free bestowal of mercy and justice. And then verses 19 through 24, we have God's sovereign will questioned by insignificant creatures improperly. And then verses 25 through 33, the rejection of the Jews and call of the Gentiles prophesied and predestinated, as were the means to such end. Now, verse 4, 
We'll look at verse 4. I thought to do this all in one sweep. There's so much here, we'll take it one part at a time. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. We're looking then at the privileges of the Israelites considering the adoption this afternoon. What is this when he says, to whom pertaineth the adoption? First then, who are Israelites? Matthew Poole says they are the offspring of that holy patriarch, Israel. Please open to the book of Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24, page 140 of your pew Bibles. Leviticus 24. We'll see a little bit about this word Israelite. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the identical word used by the Apostle Paul in the instances we'll cite from the Old Testament. Leviticus 24, starting at verse 10. And the son of an Israelitish woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And they brought him unto Moses. And his mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Now, notice... We have both the feminine, Israelitish, in the Greek as well as in the Hebrew, it's in the feminine. This woman is Israelitish. But then also notice, he strove with a man of Israel. Again, Israelitish, but in the masculine. So it describes their nation of origin. Note there a few things. First, you can contrast Israelitish with the word Egyptian. Egyptian means your race is of Egypt, that's your people. Israelite means Israel is your race, that's your people. In fact, notice there in verse 11, his mother's name was Shelomith. This is the Israelitish woman, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan, one of the parts of the nation of Israel, one of that family. So Israelite has reference to a nation of origin, in this case, being the offspring of that holy patriarch, Israel. Please open to John chapter 1, page 1064, for the usage of this word Israelite in the New Testament. I want you to think about the irony of what our Lord Jesus Christ says here. John 1, starting at verse 45. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, note it, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Now, there's a, a, a couple of things going on here. One is there are false Israelites and true Israelites. The false Israelites profess with their lips 
and in their bodies are descended from Israel, but are not really Israelites. Then there are Israelites indeed in whom there is what? No guile. So he's recognizing there's a spiritual Israel. There's an election that's general and there's an election that's particular. You might be an Israelite and not be a indeed Israelite. But this man is indeed an Israelite. And do you know, why was Jacob's name changed to Israel? And what does the name Jacob mean? Well, the name Jacob means he who has guile, he who deceives, he who takes by the heel and deceives his neighbor. That's what it means. So when Jesus says he is an Israelite indeed, in whom is no Jacob, in whom is no guile, in whom is no deceit. In other words, he genuinely believes in the Lord and he speaks his mind freely. He doesn't lie. He doesn't pretend he doesn't believe what he believes. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He's a genuine man. He's a true man. You can trust what he says. No guile in his mouth. Unlike our father Jacob, when he deceived his brother Esau with a mess of pottage for the covenants of promise, you see. No guile. So here we have the nationality with the spiritual substance of that nationality, indeed Israelite. And we have the meaning of the name Israel as contrasted with Jacob's former name, Jacob. Quite a turn of words. Please turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We will see that the apostles, generally speaking, refer in this same manner to their kinsmen according to the flesh. They call them Israelites, sometimes Jews, sometimes Israelites. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Now, notice, men of Israel, Israelitoi, you Israelites, you men, descended from our father Jacob, in other words. This is how Peter addresses them. Now, in chapter 3, verse 2, or excuse me, 3, verse 12, next page over, we see much the same thing. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, same exact adjective, ye Israelites, ye men descended from the patriarch Israel. We also see this in chapter 5, verse 35, and by Paul in chapter 13, verse 16. Turn over to Chapter 13, verse 16 of the book of Acts, a few pages over. Page 1110. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Ye Israelites, ye men of Israel, in other words. Now, in fact, if you look at chapter 21, you'll find not only the apostles using this term, you find the wicked Jews themselves use this term of themselves. Look over at chapter 21, verse 28. Now these are Jews descended from the uh, patriarchs. They're from Asia, down in Jerusalem. They see Paul there and they say, crying out, Men of Israel, help! Ye Israelites, help. It's the same word in Greek. Men descended from the patriarch Israel. 
Now, Paul uses this term Israelite even of himself. Please turn over to Romans chapter 11, looking there at verse 1, page 1143, just a few pages over. Peter addresses the men of Israel as Israelites. Paul calls them Israelites. The mob calls themselves Israelites. Paul calls himself an Israelite. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am a what? Israelite. Well, prove it, Paul. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 concerning these Israelites. Page 1171, 2 Corinthians 11. We'll look at verse 30, 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Notice, Hebrew, Israelite, seed of Abraham, and Jews are synonymous. The Jews from Asia spoke to the Jews in Jerusalem, calling them what? Israelites. I note then this doctrine. Sadly, this has to be said. There is a real ethnic group called the Israelites, okay? Not a fantasy, not a fiction. There's an actual people group called the Israelites. They were distinct from the Egyptians. They existed in the ancient world. It included the tribe of Dan, as the woman named herself, or the Holy Ghost named her, from Debrai, the son of Dan. It includes those who can also be described as Hebrews and the seed of Abraham and Jews. They're a real people group and they're distinct from other people groups. Those descended from Jacob, distinct from other nations. This people group, the Israelites, crucified Jesus Christ himself. That's what Acts 2 told them. You Israelites. You crucified the Son of God. Paul was one of their number. They were his kinsmen according to the flesh. And, as we will see in Romans 11, God holds out particular promises to this distinct people group known as the Israelites. Now, why do I say this? Well, people have very strange beliefs. Some people have extremely strange beliefs, so far off their rockers that the rocker doesn't exist anymore. This stands as a rebuke to those who claim either that there is no such people group and we hate them. Oh, there's no such thing as Jews. They're a fiction of history. There wasn't such a group in the days of the apostles, they say. It was just the tribe of Judah. The lost tribes of Israel were somewhere else. Oh, really? Wrong. That's not true. They were Israelites, descended from Israel. They were from different tribes, Levi, Benjamin, etc. You see that in the Gospels. They're an actual people group who really existed. They weren't the Native Americans. They weren't the Anglo-Saxons. They were a distinct people group in the Middle East, in the land of Palestine, in the days of Paul. 
and their descendants got driven out of Palestine because of their great wickedness in crucifying Jesus Christ. Some say, well, they're just the Jews, the one tribe. See, they're always called Jews, but notice they're also called what? Israelites. They are a real people group. Let us then take God at his word. God asserts that they have a national identity, and as we will sh shall see from chapter 11, they have national privileges tied to that national identity. Please turn back to Romans chapter 9. These are his kinsmen according to the flesh, his brethren, as he calls them, to whom pertaineth, he says, the adoption. Now, please turn again to the Old Testament concerning this adoption. What adoption is the apostle writing about? What is he referring to? Is he referring to the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, from chapter 8? Let's see. Exodus chapter 4, we'll look at verses 22 and 23, page 64 of your pew Bibles. Exodus 4, 22. This is God telling Moses what to do at the burning bush. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my, what? Son. Even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay whom? Thy son, even thy firstborn. Notice the parallel. I am God. I have a son. He's going to inherit all my goods. He's my firstborn. Let him go. This is God. On the other hand, you have Pharaoh who considers himself a god. He has a son who is also his firstborn. What is God going to do to his son if Pharaoh won't let the son of God go? It's going to strike him dead. He will kill him. But notice, in any case, the adoption. God adopted Israel as his son, making him heirs of his estate. My firstborn. That's the guy that inherits your goods. Israel is my heir. I have made a testament, in other words. I've adopted him, and he is my heir. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, page 216 of your pew Bibles. There is a strand of ignorance, a strain so strong, it cannot be broken with the word of God in some people. And they think that God never adopted anyone until Jesus died upon the cross. The theological term to describe this position is hogwash. Deuteronomy 14. Look there at verse 1. Ye are the, what? Children of the Lord your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Notice, did God have children in the Old Testament? Of course he did. Of course he did. Israel was his firstborn son. 
He chose him, sanctified him, called him a holy people, and said, you're my special possession, you're my inheritance, you inherit my goods, you are my offspring, you are my heirs. Now, in fact, the word used here for children is, in the Septuagint, huios. And the word for adoption is huiothesia in the New Testament. Huios is your son. Thesia means to place or to put, or the putting of a son. So when a son is adopted, he is put into the register of names and presented to the world as your son. Huiothesia. Here it is the huios or huioi. These are my children, God says. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, page 707. Not just in Moses, where the hogwash mostly says, no children, no adoption, but even in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have, re have rebelled against me. Now the word children is benim, sons. These are my sons. These are my children. I nourished, I fed them. I brought them up from a little tiny baby into this age that they're at now. I did that, he says. My sons, my children. The Geneva Bible notes on this passage, he declares his great mercy toward the Jews as he chose them above all other nations to be his people and children. Please turn over to Jeremiah 31. You know the great New Testament passage supposed to be so different from the old. Jeremiah 31, verse 9. Page 798 of your Pew Bibles. Jeremiah 31, verse 9. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am what? I'll be a father later, okay? Just wait, you know, a couple hundred years. Then, after the day of Pentecost, I'll start being your father, right? Wrong. For I am a father. I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Please turn over to Hosea chapter 11. It's all through the prophets. And when you take not merely the direct statements of paternity and of sonship and all the allusions to inheritance, to heirship, to swearing, to testaments, to covenants, then you get even further into it. Adoption is everywhere in the Old Testament. It is everywhere. Hosea chapter 11, page 917 of your pew Bibles. Starting there at verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, that the apostle applies this to our Lord Jesus Christ is perfectly suitable. That's how types and anti-types work. 
Israel is the type of our Lord Jesus Christ being brought up as the natural son of God just as much as this man or this nation called Israel was adopted as God's son and brought up out of Egypt. The type and the anti-type, the nation and our Lord Jesus Christ, both sons of God in different respects. So notice here, the people of God in the Old Testament were a chosen nation. They were, we would say, a visible church. God marked them out and said, that's my son, my firstborn. Why? Because I've adopted him, because I've appointed an inheritance for him. In fact, what is the land of Palestine? What is the land of Israel in the days of Joshua? But this, this is your inheritance. You are my heirs. This is my testament. These are my beneficiaries. That's what he said. And then what did Joshua do? He administered God's testament. He gave out the goods. He divided up the spoils that God had said, you are my inheritance. You will inherit my goods. This land I will be with you. God marked out this nation as his sons and daughters. Yet, this is extremely important. There was an adoption within the adoption. There was an election within the election. There was a nation within the nation. And this we'll consider more in chapter 9 of Romans. I note then this doctrine. As there is an invisible church of the elect adopted by God and his covenant of grace, so there is a visible counterpart. There is an invisible church, not known to men, known only to God. He can see the whole thing, we can't. But in the same way that there is an election and an adoption there, so likewise in the visible manifestation. There is a visible church, just like there is an invisible church. He's talking about a visible adoption. It pertained to the Israelites, those descended directly from Jacob of one of those 12 tribes, it pertained to them to be adopted by God. They were his son. They were his firstborn. So there is a visible church even in the Old Testament. Now let's look at Deuteronomy 32, just so we understand this isn't something new to the Apostle Paul. Moses taught the same thing. The prophets taught the same thing. Deuteronomy 32, page 238 of your pew Bibles. We'll look at a few of these verses. Verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. That word generation means to beget a son. They are not begotten of me, in other words, he says. But he says they have a spot, they have a mark, they have a blotch on them. And are my children identified with that blotch that they have? No, that's not the blot, that's not the spot that I put on my children. They're not begotten of me. But notice verse 6. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy what? Wait a second. Wait, time out. They're not the spot of your children. They're a corrupt generation. They're not begotten by you, but they are your children? Yes. 
They are his children by an external election and adoption. He has chosen their nation as a visible church. And yet, are they Israelites indeed? Are they heirs of the testament God made with Abraham? Moses says, no, they're not. Look down at verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. This is extremely important. This is a figure of speech by which God makes himself the heir. You see that? And he does this a lot. Jacob is the lot of God's inheritance. But what he's referring to is this. I have entailed all my goods upon him. But it's as if all I care about is him as my inheritance. You see that? I've loved him so greatly that it's like if I were to inherit, it would be Jacob. He'd be my inheritance. That's how much he loves his people. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. God has appointed an inheritance for his people by a testament made with their fathers in the howling wilderness. Verse 10, God moved with compassion, made his testament. So, is there a visible church in the Old Testament? Yes. Is there a visible adoption of the people of God in the Old Testament? Yes. Does it entail the actual substance of salvation on all within the visible church? No, it does not. They were a perverse, a crooked generation. They had the devil for their father, John 8, verses 39 through 44. They did not bear a spot that his children would bear. In exhortation, then, do not rest content with a visible adoption. National privileges, family privileges, baptism in the flesh as they had circumcision in the flesh. Embrace what those things point you to, the promises themselves, the remission of your sins, cleansing from all your idols and all your filthiness, Baptism and devotion to Christ as those dead to sin and alive unto God. I note then another doctrine from this portion of this verse. Membership in the visible church is a privilege and a birthright to some. Membership in the visible church is a privilege and to some a birthright. That means you get it by virtue of your birth. It is passed on to you. That's what he's saying. They were Israelites. What does that mean? Descended from Israel, their father. And it pertained to them to be adopted by God as such. Now, some of our brethren in their zeal for the word of God without knowledge will say, but you see, that's how it's so much better now. Because they had a privilege of being adopted into the visible church and our children don't. Isn't that great? Isn't that a step above the Jews? No, it's not. Paul is enumerating for us under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost the good things that God did for Israel. The blessings, the privileges he showered upon them. Let's turn back for a second. Think about what he's saying here. 
These are blessings and privileges to thank God for, not to be turned aside as, oh, that's passe, that's the Old Testament. They're Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption. Is that a good thing? Well, yes. The glory, is that a good thing? Yes. What about the covenants? Very good. Giving of the law, excellent. Service of God, nothing better. Promises, what more could you ask for? Whose are the fathers? Of course that's great. And concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Is that a privilege? You better mark it down. The privilege of privileges was theirs. He's not naming things to say, oh, look how bad it was in the Old Testament. They had an adoption that was merely external. Is that bad? Should Christians want the same privilege? Should we desire it? Yes. Should we say, no, it's not for us? No. That's ridiculous. It's nonsense. Gibberish. Of course it's a privilege. Of course it's a blessing. Membership in the visible church is a privilege and a birthright to some. These were Paul's kinsmen after the flesh, verse 3. They were of the same national origin. Hebrews seed of Abraham, Israelites. They had a patrimony, that is, the money or the goods your father assigns to you to be adopted by God, handed down from their father. Our larger catechism, question 62, asks, what is the visible church? Now notice the scriptural clarity here. The visible church is a society made up of all such as in all ages. Notice, back then, right now, in the future. All ages. Such as in all ages and places of the world do profess the true religion and of their children. You see, it's a privilege. It's a blessing to be part of the visible church. It is a glory to thank God on your knees, children. God, thank you for putting me in your visible church as part of my inheritance. It is a birthright. It is a privilege. It is a blessing to be under the means of grace. To be within this visible society as those in all ages from David to Abraham to Noah on till the end of the world, you are privileged. You are blessed. Parents, improve this adoption privilege. Your children are received together with you into the bosom of the church of Jesus Christ into that visible society of God's saints, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. No man can have God for his father without the church as his mother. That's what the fathers said. A, a phrase liable to be abused and yet nonetheless true. The church is our nursing mother who nourishes us on the words of eternal life so that at last we come to his heavenly kingdom. Improve upon this privileged status for your children, parents. These Christian privileges do not fall away with the New Testament. No, they continue on forevermore. When you have your children baptized, 
you promise to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And even if there are Baptists who hear these words, you have a duty to do so and to have them baptized and to receive the privileges of God. You promised when you had your children baptized to teach them the doctrines of our holy religion. What do we believe from the word of God? A sanctified, holy, not a profane religion, a religion of divine origin from the word of God. You promised to pray with and for your children and to set before them a pious example that they could follow and not say, I hate that religion of my parents. You want them to say, I love that God of my parents. I want to be like them. I want to follow them to the kingdom of God. Not the pagans ruining themselves, mutilating their bodies, corrupting their minds, destroying their souls. I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be like heretics and pagans. I don't want to follow their wicked ways. I don't want to be with wormwood. No. Parents do not grow cold. Do not grow slothful. Do not be distracted even by good things. Make this your one great aim for your children, that they may know their father's God, that they may walk in the light of their privileges and truth and uprightness, that they may trust in the Savior Jesus Christ, who took those little ones into his arms and said, I will bless them. I will bless your seed. You who believe in me, I will bless your children together with you. Stay focused, training up those other visible saints right in your household, little believers, so far as we know, and as we are to think of them, these are visible people of God, privileged together with us in this adoption. Children, do not let your privileges lie dormant. Rather, take them up and improve them. Have you been washed with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost? Go beyond the removal of the filth of the flesh to the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Christ. Do not squander your inheritance by unbelief, idleness, belly gods, self-seeking. Devote yourselves to trusting in Christ, doing his will, walking in his ways, reading his promises. You know, the adoption means there's a codicil, there's a testament, there's a book. You can find out all about the inheritance. You can find out what statutes are in this book who the heirs are, what their attributes are, how to make it at last to the heavenly kingdom. This book tells you everything. Read it. Consume it. Know it. Live it. Breathe it. Do it. And thus far the exposition of the privileged status of adoption. Let's pray.